What is it you want, Barry? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dying times here. Come with me if you want to live. That's it, man. Game over, man. Game over. The Force will be with you. Always. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to 20th Century Geek. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly, and welcome back to part two of our Vincent Price sort of retrospective. We'll do a proper retrospective one day. I'll go back and probably do things like the post cycle, maybe, or maybe we'll do a full The Fly retrospective. I'll do all of them. Anyway, in the last episode, I gave you a bio, uh, a full sort of, you know, not too detailed, but a biography of the great man himself. Vincent Price from his birth in 1911 all the way through his career uh, well into the 80s and his final uh, death in 1903 however that's sort of like him and I gave some notes about why I got into him and how I came across him which was interesting you know I came across him watching um, House on Haunted Hill which we are going to talk about more today uh, and uh, a couple of other films but I want to talk about more about me my top five is what I'm going to talk about today I love a good list I do, I love a good list. So we're going to talk about my top five. And that's not to say these are the definitive best Vincent Price films. Oh no, I'm sure there'll be other people that disagree with me and other films that get thrown in. And we will note a couple of those I think are worth noting as well at the end. Um, but this is my top five. These are my five favourites. These are the ones I go back to the most. Um, and so, yeah, we're going to throw them in. We're going to start flying. We're going to do a proper like, full countdown. Top, pop, top of the pop style. And uh, let's get into it. We're going to talk about each of them individually a little bit. So, start with number five. Number five, and again, it sounds like least of the list, but it's not. This is his top five, a very long list of films. Is uh, Witchfinder General um, from 1968, directed by Michael Reeves. And um, this is Vincent Price doing something a little different at this time. In the, in the 60s, he had done. Uh, the the post cycle he'd done some d- dramatic roles I suppose uh, you know uh, and had pushed it a little bit with uh, some of those the post films especially sort of House of Usher Tomb of Ligeia um, and I love those films no, they don't quite make it into top five which I think some people will do really dispute but in this he's playing something different because in those films he plays sort of like the, almost like the victim but like you know in, in House of Usher he's playing um, the victim for curse, you know, he feels that he is downtrodden and he is the victim and this, all this other stuff. And in Tomb of Ligeia, he's a grieving man who is feels he's haunted by his uh, deceased wife. So he, he, you know, he's playing that in a sombre sort of macabre way. With, with playing Matthew Hopkins, the Witchfinder General, a real person who uh, I believe in the 17th century, uh, maybe early 16th century, I don't know. No, 17th it must have been because it's, it's Oliver Cromwell would ride the countryside. Uh, and with no authority other than his own would declare that he had the power and the the authority and the power to um, decide which women in a village or a town were witches he would come in and there would be accusations they would be brought forward and there would be tests done and these women would then be punished usually by hanging or burning or whatever and the tests are ridiculous. I, mean, I think if you've, if any of you done 
any form of sort of historical study in this area. Even in basic, for Americans in high school and in secondary school, you'll have heard of things like the ducking stool where they'll dunk you underwater. If you drowned, well, that shows that you weren't a witch. And if you didn't drown, well, you're a witch and you're going to get burnt. So there was really no way of winning at any of this. Um, and, you know, the sim- ridiculous things like that. Um, and this film sort of plays into that. It's not so much... This film isn't a supernatural film. You'd think it would, but, you know, with his past record and the fact it's got witch in the title, Witchfinder General, but it's not. Um, this is very much more of a psychological horror. Uh, more like a period thriller, in, in many ways. Um, but Matthew Hopkins takes interest in this lady as... You know, not being a witch, but when, until she decides she's not going to be with him, um, and then decides to do his thing, do what he does, uh, and in that a, a sort of a young uh, Cromwellian um, soldier decides to take his revenge uh, on on Matthew Hopkins. Now the thing with this film is that it's sort of it's it's not particularly long. You know, it's sort of eighty seven minutes. I've got thinking for it's eighty seven minutes. But there's a lot packed into this film. It's really quite a, a dense film. Because it covers this whole thing around the historical context of Matthew Hopkins, uh, Oliver Cromwell and his place in Britain at the time, how the soldiers were sort of leave, leading their lives, you know, marching across the country. Um, but it also sort of adds into this thing of like what British life was like and also these sort of folklorish ideas that sort of uh, existed around this time. About witches and, and super, you know, superstitions and folklore, to the extent that this is actually considered a part of um, what is often called the sort of the folk horror trilogy. This trilogy of films uh, that sort of ignited folk horror, or at least sort of cemented it. Um, which one, in general, um, the the Wicker Man and uh, the Blood on Satan's Claw, all come out around this time between sort of sixty five and seventy five. Um, and then you you know you get sort of folk horror coming out of the back of that a little bit more, but you know whilst um, well the Blood and Satan's Claw is definitely a supernatural film, and that's another great film that I may one day talk about. In fact, I might even just do that as a trilogy uh, to talk about these films. And the same with sort of the Wicker Man. There's no real supernatural element to that, just a cultish behaviour. Um, and that's what this film is about. This film really leans into the the revenge element one anything but the thing to hammer home is up until this point vincent price is known yes to play villains you know and we'll cover a couple more in this list but they've all been very sort of like convivial you know they've been quite sort of like smooth and you know um, sophisticated you know modern men really i suppose matthew hopkins is he's he's an absolute fucking brute you know, he, he just, he's, he's well educated, he's clearly more educated than others around, and he uses that, but he's an absolute bastard. Um, you know, as, as you would say in sharp countries, proper, he's a proper bastard. Um, and, and he plays it to an absolute T. He's wonderful in this. Uh, having played all these nice and nice characters in the past, sort of, he's much softer characters in the past. Like he wants to get his teeth into this, and it's clear that he is relishing the opportunity to play someone so vile and horrible. Like he doesn't want you to sort of root for him in any way. This isn't, you know, that sort of like not an anti-hero, but a sort of a hero baddie or a you know a soft, sympathetic villain or whatever. It's not that he is vile throughout and wonderfully so. Um, the other thing is about this film is like one of the weird things is 
because it is a good film. It's a really good film, actually. And I mentioned this in the, in the last um, podcast: is Reeves, the director, and, and Vincent Price didn't get on a great deal. They disagreed about quite a few things in the filmmaking. However, in working together, they do actually form a really good duo, and it's clear that they do agree on some things. Uh, and Vincent Price brings his A game, but Reeves, more than anything, shoots the shit out of this. There are some really well shot scenes, um, you know, and some great vistas, and they really utilise the countryside uh, well, and, and it make you realise how barren it probably was at this point in in the seventeenth century. So, yes, yeah, so, so number five is the Witchfinder General, and I, you know, again, highly recommend it. It's a good start. It's a good opener for this. So. Moving on, other end of the scale, completely other end of the scale, number four, is The Comedy of Terrors, an earlier film, 1963, directed by Jack Tournier, and in this, Vincent Price plays uh, Waldo Trumbull, or Turnbull, as he keeps getting called, and this is very far away from Witchfinder General, this is almost like a carry-on, like a farce comedy, um... Price plays Waldo uh, Trumbull, who is a, a con man, a drunk, again, playing the villain, like, you know, a thoroughly horrible person, but playing it for laughs this time, a much more sort of uh, smoother character. But he's a con man who has wormed his way into a woman's uh, life, he's become her, her husband, in order to get a part of her father's funeral parlour business, and now he's elderly and he runs it, and he is running it into the ground. And sees that his livelihood is about to go. And they pull all these tricks to cut, cut, cut corners. Um, and his sidekick, uh, Peter Laurie, who is excellent in this. Like, absolutely fantastic. Another one who you know, just seems to have fantastic comedy timing. And they do a great comedy duo. I mean, they, they work together, uh, I think the same year, or the year before at least. Uh, I can't remember to find out. Uh, on The Raven, which is part of the Poe cycle. Um but in this, like Price and Laurie are basically sort of trying to find ways of saving money, and that the way they sort of seem to do it is, in the opening scene, they have like this funeral procession, and it's all very somber, and you know they're all sort of giving that the the one smile of like oh you know our condolences and that sort of thing, and then the moment the people are out of the way, they literally just hoof the body out of the coffin, this very you know swanky coffin they've got hoof the body into the ground and cover it in dirt and then put the coffin back in and they reuse this coffin over and over again and it turns out later in the film as well they've been used doing this for 13 years <clears throat> which is a great little gag but the, the other thing is um and it's a great point in this town his business his business is going downhill yet there are still people dying so why is that it's because he doesn't have much of a you know decent reputation. More than that, he as he owes rent a year's rent to um, his obviously his landlord played by Basil Rathbone. And so, uh, in wanting to you know pay off this debt, he finds they go a bit Birkenhead basically. That you know, well we need people to bury. If not coming to us, we need to generate business. So how do you generate business? You start killing people. So that's what they do. They start to uh, to bump people off. And so you get these sort of like this series of events then uh, around trying to bury people, and each one's like a comedy skit. Like the first one they do, they kill this this guy off because it's sort of almost instigated by this 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 guy's wife. But they kill this person off. They're ready to bury him, and she's run off with the money, so he's out, out, still out of pocket. And these little jokes continue like that. 
and it escalates and escalates and there's some great moments um but again in it like you know it really plays um to uh price's comedy chops in this like he, you know he's he play, he plays again like, he knows how to be vile but funny um and it's all about being this sort of sophisticated like, he's horrible to his wife and you know and he's just vile to the peter laurie character but he's actually like i still like him in this film i really like him and he's fantastic and it also comes that this is there's a meme if you do the vincent price meme game you know you put him in there into the a gif i should say you put into into your phone or into twitter or whatever there's one there and it says you know it's um um so bad how sad or how sad so bad and that's from this film and he does this sort of face of and he has that sort of that long face that he's able to pull um and, and, you know, weird, I have this weird thing. Like, I kind of like carry-on films. If you know what carry-on carry film is, well, one, they talk about those. It's a series of British comedy films from sort of 50s through to the 70s. Uh, and it's very sort of farcical humour. It's sort of very sort of... It's relatively mature. It's toilet humour in many cases. You know, don't look all of it. But there's a couple that really stand out. And there's one called Carry-On Screaming, which is excellent. Um, and that's this sort of fits into that. Like, not every joke, joke lands... But there's still some really good, solid moments in this that make me chuckle. Like this is a proper like you know not belly laughs, but I just in lot enjoy this film. There's a there's a good um, sense to this film, and of course, and of course, it, you know it all ends up. I'm not going to spoil the ending, but it ends up as you would expect in these cases. Like you know the 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 villains, you know, and and the so called heroes. But it it play. The thing is, this film also plays like a play. You, know, you could easily sort of transcribe this to. I think you could easily do something like them to make this a uh, a stage play. Um, but yeah, I don't know much to say about that really. Comedy of Terrors. It's a good film. It's, it's it's available through. This is one of the ones I got through Arrow. Actually, it's a great edition. Um, just to know, I will say about Peter Laurie as well. Peter Laurie. I first was first introduced to Peter Laurie a little bit like with Vincent Price as well. Um, I knew of him. I'd seen him in Casablanca. He's in Casablanca, and a couple of gangster films. I think uh, is he in Maltese Falcon? I don't know, but those are uh, gangster films. And I know then that he had um, in Aladdin uh, a G- the genie sort of when he's saying about um, bringing people back to life. Uh, well, you know, it doesn't kill anyone, but bring people back to life. I don't like doing it. That's the Peter Laurie voice. Um, and so he's just one of these, these actors, characters. If you were to, and, and Looney Tunes always got a very distinctive face, very round face, big sort of bug eyes, um, and they kind of liked using him as a caricature quite a lot. Um, but if you were to ask a lot of people, they'd probably never heard of him, which is a real shame because he's actually very, very good. So very good in this. Anyway, I'm going to keep going. We're going to keep going with this, ladies and gentlemen. We're doing all right. So, because we're going to get some big, big talk about the rest of them. So, let's get to the next one. Number three. Number three is the Haunted Palace, from ni- also from nineteen sixty-three, directed by Roger Corman. Often attributed to um, the Poe cycle. However, the Haunted Palace isn't a Poe film. They try to make it part of a Poe film by, uh, I think, the Haunted Palace may be a title, or they had a, a line in, or a, a piece of poetry, or something like that. Which they do with a couple of others. Um, but it's not a Poe film. It's not based on a Poe story. In fact, it's based on one of my favourite writers, H.P. Lovecraft. The Haunted Palace is actually a telling, a very loose adaptation, 
of uh, the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Um, now, the original case of uh, Charles Dexter Ward is a really sort of labyrinthine um, story of you know stories within a story, and it's characters doing this and people that aren't who they say they are, and all kinds of things going on. It's a fucking awesome story. This is a little more straightforward. It's very much um, the character of Charles Dexter Ward inherits a palace uh, or a big castle on a hill in this sort of uh, um, Dunwich kind of town or, or Innsmouth kind of town. It has that sort of feel to it. Very foggy. The people there are all a little bit... There's a there's a sort of a strain of person that lives in this town that has deformities. You know, they're missing uh, eyes or growths and all kinds of things. Anyway, he turns up to this town, they inherit this this, this castle it's inherited, and it's obviously that people don't want him there, and when he goes to visit it, they're like, look, we'll do it up, a bit of a flip, basically, we'll do it up, make it look nice, and then we'll sell it on, and, you know, we'll make a fortune. Um, and as they go through the castle, and as they say that, they get visitors that are like, you know, one saying, like, you know, you should leave, and others saying, you know, you're not part of town, that sort of thing. As Charles sort of roots, roots his way through this building... He feels more and more at home. He starts to sort of go, oh, you know, this is maybe where I should be. This is something different to me. And he starts to have these sort of uh, flashbacks and this other stuff. And and then what you find out is that um, an ancestor, um, Kerwin, uh, Joseph Kerwin, dealt in the black arts and, and witchcraft and all this other stuff many, many, many years ago and was going to sacrifice um, a young girl and the villagers storm the castle. All very sort of like, you know, universal monster style. You know, they storm the castle, they drag him out, save the girl, or they think they've saved the girl, but she's clearly still possessed. They save the girl, strap him to a tree, and they burn him alive. Now, both Joseph Kerwin and Charles Dexter Ward, played by Vincent Price. But over time, something happens, or you unearth something, and <clears throat> the, the spirit of, of Joseph Kerwin starts to take over. Uh, Charles Dexter Ward and starts to sort of like you know there'll be moments when he's sort of like he's, he, he has like blackouts and he can't remember where he's been for hours and stuff and they can't get down to the basement and, and um, he doesn't know why he seems to remember that he's been there but he can't doesn't know how to get there when he's when he's Charles Dexter Ward and then you know the servants these two sort of people there's a manservant and somebody else that that, that, that um just start to act bizarrely. You know, I think one of them was Lon Chaney Jr. Um, they start acting up funny. And then basically it turns out that, that, that eventually sort of, um, Joseph Cohen does take him over and he wants to use his wife for a sacrifice. And they have a friend who has sort of like, you know, has come in to save the day and all this other stuff. Um, and the end of this film, <laughs> at the end of this film, like, you know, they have the... the her, Charles X Award wins out, but he's able to get his personality back. Or at least, you know, is he? That sort of a, there's a bit of a question mark at the end, which is great. But there's a wicked shot in this film where they have the woman over this pit that's in the basement. And it's sort of, you, you're about to lower in, it's to, it's to feed this thing in the basement or to below the basement, whether it be like, um, you know, an elder god or whatever it is that, that Joseph Kerwin was, was praying to and worshipping and using to gain his magical powers. I and mean, you see it, and what they've done is they've they've sort of it's almost like an underwater effect. It's all sort of ripply and sort of stuff, but it's perfectly described. It's almost like a perfect depiction of what how you would describe a Lovecraftian monster. Like there's something there, and it's got yeah, it looks like it's got tentacles and eyes and sort of stuff, but you just can't see it. It's undescribable, you know, indescribable. 
Um, and I think it's, it's such a good shot. And it, considering it's a Corman film, and not even one of his top ones, from his point of view, I think it's a real achievement. Um, and, it, yeah, it just you know, plays out. It's, again, it's relatively short. It's about an hour and a half. And... Um, but it packs again in so much. And the fact that, like I say, I, again, I love that Price gets to stretch himself in this because playing both Charles Dexter Ward and Joseph Kerwin, like he's playing into, as Joseph Kerwin, like, you know, he plays into that sort of uh, stoic, gruff, villainous character, you know, sort of, um, that, you know, you, you expect, right? he's a proper baddie. But then as Joseph, as Charles Dexter Ward, like he plays it much more as a sophisticated, he, he, and he flips between them at times. And there are moments when you're not entirely sure which one he is, and he plays it down the line. Um, and that's one of the things I like about them. You know, this, these three, really start to epitomise why I like um, Vincent Price in, in so many of his roles. That, you see these, you know, these memes that are going about. It's sort of like, you know, he knew the assignment. And you show the four pictures, whatever. Vincent Price always knew the assignment. You know, he knew whether it was going to be full humour or uh, to go for the melodrama or whatever. Like, he got it. And I think that's one of the important things. Probably one of the things he didn't, he sort of jutted up against with Reeves and the Witchfinder General because he sort of... You know, he just, he got when to use humor and when to use the macabre or, or some something darker. Like, he seems to understand that, especially playing villains. Like he always said in interviews, I've heard him you know, numerous times saying, like the reason he likes to play villains because they're more fun. You could do more with them, and I think that's what he's trying to do is give them depth because you could just be the one note, and he he does do one note villains as well. There has been a couple, but um, yeah. With this, he he sort of manages to keep that balance, and there's some great moments in this, and it obviously has things like the Necronomicon in, and it really sort of touches on the the Lovecraftian side of things. But one of the things I love about this film as well is the aesthetic when they go into, and I'm trying to remember the name of the town. I swear to God, it, it's called either Dunwich or um, Innsmouth. Can't remember. Anyway, but the people with the deformities and these other bits and pieces, like it really is. Um, it creeps me out. It's proper creepy, but I also like the fact that they have like this thing of generational, this legacy. So there's characters from uh, two hundred years. I think there's a hundred or hundred and fifty years before, and the actors are playing their ancestors in both periods. Um, uh, you know the modern and the the previous, and so there's this idea of sort of like them playing out the same roles over again. This idea of a time, not not it, it, not it's not like um. You know, it's not a time loop. It's not a time travel movie, but this idea of legacy and, and generations playing out the same roles over and over again. Um, and I don't think it tends to be deep, and but, but, but it's there. You know, it's there, and it's not part of the subcut. It's, you know, it's not subtext. It's definitely context. Um, but yeah, it's a great film, and it, and it has some fantastic shots. Um, it suffers from one of the. There's, there's a couple of shots actually. Was it? It does suffer from. And this is a common thing. I suppose it's a sixties thing as well. Is transitioning from the wide shots that are clearly outside to the to the close-in shots or the locked shots that are clearly on a set and the transitions don't always look great and it's a bit distracting there's at least two in this film i find very distracting but other than that the sets are fantastic like the castle the palace is absolutely fantastic um 
so yeah certainly that's that's the, the haunted palace again available from arrow um beautiful film as well this is one that this is probably the first call yeah this is the first corman in fact this is the only corman one on the list um and i'll have to say i suppose it's worth touching on at this point the, the poe trilogy because a couple that just fell out of it is like house of usher and um the thing with with Roger Corman, everyone thinks he was like the cheap director and all this other stuff. But if you watch these films, these early sixties films, um, like The Haunted Palace, House of Usher, Tomb of Ligeia is another one. Tomb of Ligeia is, is badass. It's got some really fantastic stuff in. Not my favorite film, but it's just got some really good stuff in. The guy had a real eye for texture and for color, and just this again knowing when to use it. Like House of Usher has a real sort of a, a colorful palette to it but it's all in service of this sort of contradiction of like you know these the uh, the clothes are very luscious and fine silks or, or velvets and there's all these fine drapes and sort of stuff in this house but you know that there's this sort of rot running through all of it and it sort of masks it but not quite and you sort of see that in the film and the same sort of true of the haunted palace is sort of like you know he knows when to use the shadows and when to use the sort of uh, the grime and you see you know when they're in the palace there was moments that are shot with the uh, the has this massive open fire and they use it as points I'm sure it must be additional lighting use but it lights this part of the castle and when he's when he's Charles Dexter Ward the lighting is of a certain style and then when he's Joseph Kerwin it comes down and there's more shadows and his his face is in shadow and stuff like that. And he's he, Corman just knew how to get things in the can. He's like, I know what I want, know how to do it, crack on, and you know that's really impressive. I mean, Haunted Palace, great film. So coming into the top two now. So number two, this one's a doozy, absolute doozy. I I ran a not not such a poll. I didn't want to say there's a poll, but I did a bit of a question on Facebook the other day. Excuse me. Um, asking everybody what their top five. Uh, Vincent Price films were. I did it on two uh, Vincent Price appreciation pages, and as you can imagine, the fives um, altered quite a bit. But there were two films that, that sort of pretty much existed on every single one. They were my top two. There's another film we'll talk about after this that turned up a lot. But these these top two turned up on pretty much everybody's list, and this one was said to be. Um, was top on a lot of people's list. But also, apparently, it was one of Vincent Price's personal favourite films to do. And it's Theatre of Blood from 1973, uh, directed by Douglas Hickox. And he play, and Vincent Price plays, plays uh, Edward Lionheart. Great name. Um, and what he is, he's a thespian, he's an ageing actor who has been doing stage work all his life. And this is, you know, he's obviously so close to... Price himself. Lionheart's almost like a, a cousin to Vincent Price in many ways. So Lionheart's this ageing actor, done stage and screen all his life, mainly stage. And he feels, in his own opinion, that he is one of the best, if not the best, uh, Shakespearean actor on the British stage. And he's never been recognised for it. He doesn't feel like he's had that recognition that he fully deserves. And so there's going to be this award ceremony and uh, he may or may not be in the running for this Lifetime Achievement Award, this this really prestigious award. And he doesn't get it. And when he doesn't get it, uh, he 
storms in on this party the critics are having and gives this massive tirade about why they're all wrong and, and you know how they broke him and all this other stuff. And whilst this is going on, his daughter comes in and sort of apologises for him and then he storms onto the balcony and this balcony is overlooking the Thames. So it's all, this, is all, this is a London film, I should say. Like this, this is a British film. And then he f- just flies off the balcony. And that's it. They all think he's dead. They all think he's committed suicide. The body's never found. And they think that's the last of it. This is this, this crazy uh, Edward Lionheart eventually committed suicide. You know, but just based on his own narcissism and you know, self uh, sense of self-grandeur. Anyway... A year or so later, these critics start to die off in some of the weirdest ways. Um, and they, it turns out that these ways of murder, or death, but it is murder, are representative of the ways characters die in Shakespeare plays. And they get bloodier and bloodier and crazier and crazier. Um, and... One my favourite one is one of the critics. Uh, it's a representation or adaptation of uh, Titus Andronicus, and in that, a uh, character is fed their own children, and this critic is fed his own. He he mothers or he, he fathers. He parents these two poodles, and then they get turned into pies. And he's he feels he, he gets duped into being on this this cuisine show, and he gets fed these pies uh, with his with his dogs in. Um, it's really weird and, and and dark in that respect, and there's a there's a lot of death in this film, but it's a comedy. This is a proper comedy horror, or a horror comedy, whichever way you want to put it. And Price is in full camp in this. Like he, you know, talk about knowing the assignment, fully on it, and um, he plays all these different characters throughout it. Like for the the one I talk about, the the Titus Andronicus one food one he plays like this guy um you know he plays a chef with these like big sideburns his big hat and he's playing it all and then if he kills one of the one of the women the female uh critics but being a hairdresser he's got this big like blonde um uh afro and this, you know these massive sunglasses and all this other stuff and, like it's clear he is having an absolute blast doing this and more so when he gets to the scenes of the of, like he turns and he starts it does get dark when he does all these um, Shakespearean scenes. Like Price is lapping it up, like he is absolutely having a blast, and because he is having a blast and so enjoying it, like this, the film just has this joy to it. It's this sort of like bizarre manic joy that is absolutely wonderful to behold. Um, and it helps by the fact the cast are clearly all in on this joke. You know, they all know. What, what they're in and how to do it and all this other stuff. And it works so well. One of the weird things, and this is actually something that sort of, I'm wondering, it was it was put as a theory that this film was actually put up as a parody of a, a, an earlier film, um, The Abominable Dr. Fibes, which we'll talk about in a bit, actually. But I'm not sure if that's the truth, but one of the reasons is for that is in, the, uh, in Dr. Fibes, the killer has this sort of weird androgynous sidekick so she's female but like doesn't do it doesn't speak doesn't do anything at all and you're not even talking sure she's if she may even be a robot it's sort of suggested but in this diana rigg sort of fulfills that role but she's a lot more proactive um and she is lionheart's daughter 
and she partakes and helps sort of like with these murders playing again and she gets to go in costume playing like males and females and all kinds of things she's brilliant absolutely brilliant. and don't feel like she is stunningly beautiful this is sort of 60 this is 74 it's post uh the avengers um but yes yeah, she's, she's still wonderful in this absolutely beautiful and absolutely hilarious in parts but again knows how to do the drama um and yeah it, it sort of had to describe it really it's just relishes it's this is one of those horror films that just relishes being uh relishes in the horror but without being nasty about it you know like yes we're gonna have a character eaten to death by ants or yes we are gonna have someone eat their own dogs or yes we're gonna kill someone like we are gonna try and kill someone by impaling them on something like yeah we're gonna do all that but you know what we're gonna have a blast doing it it's gonna be hilarious we're gonna be fun doing it and that's why i love this film so much i mean it has like a really um poignant ending as well like you know it ends i think of like um frankenstein or or, uh, hunchback of notre dame those sort of things like the, the film ends with uh lionheart being pursued to his his lair i suppose and you find out that he's trained all these sort of like demented homeless people to to partake in these shakespearean plays uh, and they're all they've all they've learnt lines but that seems to be all they know and they recite them over and over and over again in this maddening way um but when the police get there and they save another copper who's been captured um his daughter lionheart's daughter gets shot and Lionheart then climbs like into the rafters with her body, sort of trying to get away. As the, and then eventually, the sort of the the uh, theater catches fire, and um, it's just him and you know eventually just trying to escape the flames with his daughter, still shouting at these critics and people for not recognizing his talent and his greatness. And then eventually, the roof just caves in and he, he just disappears. Um, it's brilliant. It's it's such a good film. Uh, I may have to go watch it in a minute. But yeah, Theatre of Blood, 1973, is in at number two for the best reason possible because it's just, it's well acted, it's it's t- it's a tight film and it's, a, I've said about this being a blast, but this is so much fun. Um, it's, 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 I'll tell you what it is. You could sit and just watch this film and I, I have done and I often do, but you could easily like bang this on with some beers and some friends and be like, let's watch this, this is hilarious. So, highly recommend it. Theatre of Blood. Anyway, down to number one. I've talked about it quite a bit. Let's get back to the list. So, number one. Number one at the top with a bullet or a noose or a skeleton or a vat of acid. Could be anything. We are talking The House on Haunted Hill, 1959, directed by William Castle. Uh, one of his sort of fright interactive movies. Um, this is all part of his uh, big thing of trying to make the cinema interactive. Even in the 50s, Film producers and theatre go or theatre owners, cinema owners were worried people were going to go leave the theatre cinemas. They thought it was a passing fad. They were really concerned, so they were trying to make it different, three D and all these different things. And William Castle introduced a number of things. Um, another film that he did with he did with Price just after this was The Tingler, and in that they find a de- uh, there's an entity that lives in the human body, a parasite that, that lives on your fear. And when these things happen in the film, the seats would have a buzzer on them. So people get a proper little zap and stuff like that. 
Uh, and there's a story as well that during the Tingler, during its opening week, Vincent Price would sneak into cinemas at the back and watch people watching it, see how they reacted. And these two girls, he went to the screen and these two girls were sat there. And um, as they were enjoying the film, sort of like he sat back and watching. Then you know, the buzzers had gone off a few times. And then just as the film ended, he leaned in between them and said, you know, uh, my dear ladies, I do hope you enjoyed the show. And he's obviously in that very distinctive voice. But these two ladies crapped themselves and ran out. So, you know, this is the kind of thing I think Price clearly thrived and enjoyed doing this stuff. But that's the Tingler. It's a different story. Um, in fact, you can check a review of that out on Stories Out of Time and Space, our sister podcast with me and Julian Darius. Uh, and we do talk about the Tingler during our 50s sci-fi block. Anyway, back to this film. House on Haunted Hill. Um, Price plays Frederick Loren who, again, he's sort of like a, a suave and uh, erudite businessman, sort of a sophisticate. He's had multiple marriages, and each one of his wives has mysteriously gone missing. And now he's on to number five, I think, at this point. Anyway, he had, he, they don't get on, and they have this w- wonderfully venomous relationship. Um... You know, and it's clearly they just have this catty sort of go at each other constantly. When they're talking at one point, and he says, You know, do you remember that time you tried to poison me? What wonderful times we've had. Um, and, you know, and she sort of says, like, You know, well, then you know, next time I'll try something else. He says, Oh, my dear. It's, he's just so oozes, like, you know, he again, he's he's smarmy and slimy, but oozes sophistication and smoothness in this film. Um, a real charisma. That's the whole thing about it. It's price. He just has this charisma that I'm I'm drawn to. Anyway, he holds this party at this house, the house alleged unhaunted hill, and the the idea is that this house is haunted by the spirits of uh, I think it's six people that have been killed in the house. At one point, a woman went crazy and killed these people, and only her brother survived. And so her brother's actually a guest at this house, and he's sort of brought in as a bit of a mark. More than anything, like he's been challenged to come back to the house, and in doing so, he will be given ten thousand pounds if he survives overnight. But it's clear that like, he's been put there as a, as a sort of like a panic plant because the more he talks, the more the people start to panic, which is really cool. <laughs> they keep saying things like you'll find things, and like they find a knife, and saying like, this could be like the knife that killed that you know she used to kill them. But it's really funny. Um, but the others are all these people. They're just sort of people that he knows from his business. One of them's like he's a secretary from his business, and then one of them's like his solicitor. One's a, uh, I forget like either like a fighter pilot or something. There's these people there, just random people. Don't really know them. And they're all brought to his house. And the idea is, if they can stay the night, they will get ten thousand pounds, ten thousand dollars, I should say. Anyway, it turns out this whole thing is a farce, and they're all sort of the, the, Vincent Price. Or Frederick Lauren and his wife are sort of trying to work on each other to try and not just kill each other off, but there's something else going on, basically. And um, at one point, like you find the the wife hung. She's been she's been hanged, um, and everyone's like, "Oh my God, she's been murdered!" And then people see it, and you know they'll see the body out the window and all sort of stuff, and it adds to this idea of the fear. Um, and it, it does seem like they've been trying to kill each other or sort of like, you know, she has been trying to frame him for her murder and then the body will disappear, but she he can then be framed and then she can get hold of the money somehow. But he's also actually trying to kill her off. <laughs> uh, and he succeeds at the end of the film. The spoiler, it, it doesn't really spoil much. Um, 
but there's this gr just the way it sort of interactions between all these people. Like it's clearly like this really overwrought plan to create this alibi as to, as to why he can get away with these things, and then just these little scares thrown in, uh, and it carries a certain amount of tension. I mean, it's a house that feels like a haunted house ride. You know, you go around, and that's exactly what this is like. William Castle sets this film up brilliantly like a haunted house. Um, you know, the house itself is creepy, and um, there's an awesome moment, like a proper, one of the first jump scares I can think of. And it's like, uh, they're in this sort of the cell, and then this little cordoned off room, and this woman turns around, and one of the guests turns around, and this old housekeeper, like, you know, proper, like, is there, and she just appears out of nowhere. And then slides out a shot, and there's like no explanation for this other than like, oh, it's to scare the shit out of you. They're not like she's supernatural or whatever. Like she's just been set up to do this thing, but it works really well. It will make you jump. Um, but it is. It's just. It's. It's a really sort of again. There's a, there's a, there's a charm to this film. It's, it's it's fun, but there's more like it's a charm. I mean, it's in black and white, so you know. So it's, it's it's really there as a. Um, I know some people struggle with that, but it, you know it just works on so well. The, the other point about this is that the rest of the cast, again, sort of work well together. This little guy that I forget the cast name, but this guy who's like the plant, whose whose sister it was that did the killing, works as this character, like then who just keeps every now and then, like, every time he needs to, he turns up and just sparks some horror. I mean, at one point they find a severed head in a box, and instead of being like, right, well I'm done, you know, I'm off. They continue to talk about this and uh, discuss things. And they, there's a, oh, there's a fantastic moment. So when they're being presented the party, they're all presented with a gun for their own safety. This is clearly all part of the plan that someone something may happen. But each gun is presented in like a little box shaped like a coffin. Why? Other than to just be cool, that has no purpose. It's brilliant. Uh, and there's just lots of things like that in this that's just really, really good. Um, so yeah, I just, I just find that this is, a, you know, one of those films. It sort of stands, stands up. Like Price is, is brilliant in it. It's his, it's his peak, suave character. The character that you see in a lot of the animations, the caricature versions of Price. When you think of like the, um. The Thirteen Ghosts of Scooby Doo, or or things like that, when Price is played up as that sort of sophisticated um, horror character, the gentleman of horror. This is the character that they're talking about. This is the character they're playing. Uh, this version of of him, uh, you know. And so, all these other films I talk about, you know, we talked, we would talk about things like you know all the films he did during the the uh, Poe cycle or. Um, uh, like House of Wax and from the fifties, all those other ones, all those period pieces and stuff he done. Like, you no, know, they are all Vincent Price, and they are, it's him playing. However, for some reason, this film seems to sort of capture him in a certain way that has become this um, this legacy image of him, and it's almost like it captures him perfectly in time. Like this is, you know, he's he's still young enough that he looks, you know, he has his looks, and he still looks sort of young and suave, and he's, you know. Uh, not that he have looked terrible, but it just catches this ideal, idealized moment for him. But it's also when he sort of transitions to horror, so it's almost like this real. I mean, he's, he's done a couple before, but this is like the birth into, you know, it, because of this and sort of thing is why 
Cormac was interested in using him for the post cycle and so on and so forth. It just seems to capture him at a moment, <clears throat> and it's so good. Um, so yeah, I, I I can't recommend this film enough. Like again, it's all these films, none of these films. I mean, you could watch probably three of these films in the same time it would take you to watch a Zack Snyder film. So I say check these out rather than that. Um, but yeah, these films are fantastic, and I highly recommend it. So just going to run through one more time. So we've got. Number five, Witchfinder General from 1968. Number four, Comedy of Terrors from 1963. Number three, The Haunted Palace, also from 1963. Number two, Theatre of Blood, 1973. And at number one, The House on Haunted Hill, 1959, directed by William Castle. So they're my top five. Okay, so before we go, there's a couple of films I just want to shout out. Almost like you know, the, the nearly, you know, the nearly ones. Uh, also runs, you know, uh, runners up, uh, and there's there's two or three, but I suppose I just want to shout out. So, of the Corman Poe cycle, I chose uh, the Haunted Palace. I, it has Lovecraft connections, which is also a delight for me. But I really enjoy that film. But the other one to choose uh, and watch, if you get a chance, is uh, the House of Usher, based on uh, the uh, Edgar Allan Poe story, The Fall of the House of Usher, and in it, um, Price plays Roderick Usher. And again, he goes full to town. He bleaches his hair. Uh, and he plays it to a T. It's a wonderful film. It's really luscious. Like you know, this was probably the this was the first film where AIP put a lot of money into it. It had an extra extra additional shooting. Corman was given more flexibility, and it all pays off into an absolute classic of a film. It's a period piece, so don't forget that. Um, but it looks tremendous, and the film itself is actually pretty good. It has a real sort of like gothic somber tone to it. Um, Weirdly gothic, but but still being luscious in colour. Great film. Uh, the other one then to come to throw out is a bit of a, a, a how to describe them. Um, they they are preceding um, Theatre of Blood, but are very very the same thing. This is a story of he's a doctor who, following an accident, his wife went into surgery and wasn't able to be saved, uh, and in doing so, so she died. But he believes he could have saved her, being a surgeon himself. And he was hugely disfigured by this accident. He was burnt. Um, and so, you know, after surviving, he sort of went off to Italy, but he's come back to Britain, again, another British film. And he's decided to take revenge on the seven doctors that fail, he sees, that failed his wife. His name is Dr. Fibes, or the abominable Dr. Fibes. He's lost his voice, and so he has to talk through this uh, voice box on his throat. Um, and he has this obsession with like clockwork stuff. So there's a whole clockwork band, and he plays this big organ. Um, and then each of the, and again, I think it's set up for comedy. Like at one point, someone gets um, skewered by a narwhal kind of thing, and they have to unscrew them off this thing on the wall. It's bizarre. But he has a clockwork or a robotic female assistant who never talks, um, but she's there for a lot of the murders. In fact, she participates in one of them. Uh, and at the end of it, what you find out is he's actually got the body of his wife in this bed under the floor with this mirrored ceiling. And when he's done what he's when he's completed, this thing just like a tomb shuts on him. It's it's going to kill him. He's going to have himself embalmed. It's bizarre, like it's crazy at times. But again, like it is beautiful. And there's a fantastic moment throughout the film. You see him as Vincent Price, and you know he has his his voice but through a digital uh, box. But at the end of the film, like it, he he takes his face off to reveal this sort of burnt mess underneath, 
um, and it's incredibly uh, iconic. Uh, and they do a great thing with the posters when the poster's released. And it has this picture of vibes on the front, and they put a big sticker over the front of it. And say, this is too revolting to be shown to the public. It would make you sick. And it was, oh my god, this is amazing. I'm gonna go see it. Uh, and it worked really well. Uh, and the th- the first one is fantastic. It's a really good film. It's, it's a the revenge killing flicks. There was also the rise of Doctor Five. Oh no, uh, Doctor Five rises, uh, or the rise of Doctor Five, which is a sequel, which is not as good, but it's still really good fun. But again, that's about him looking for a, uh, for forms of immortality. I think to bring back his wife. And again, he kills off a bunch of people. What I should say is just quickly as we round out on these because they're the, the ones I wanted to mention, is that Theatre of Blood. <laughs> And the Fibes uh, duology, they precede a lot of like the the slasher films, and they're not quite slashers, but everyone talks about like you know uh, Psycho <coughs> and um, uh, what's it called Peeping Tom uh, from Britain, those sort of films, and then you get these things like oh yeah, well, you know, then there was um, you know, Black um, Black Christmas and these other films. And I think it's just worth pointing out that these films, the Theatre of Blood and and another one called Madhouse that Price did uh, in the Fibes films, really are slasher films. They're proto slasher films in a different way. Like you know, he's an aging actor. Like he's still he's not like Michael Myers stalking people and killing people. It's done with with humor and stuff, and more like um, you know, booby traps or sort of like you know complicated death. But it's still like these these complex killings being orchestrated by a single person. They are slasher films to an extent, without being slasher films. And I think they should be recognised as such. I really do. I really think that these films, and I would probably put those four up there, as I've just said, uh, Theatre of Blood, the, the two Fives films, and Madhouse, as examples of this this idea of slasher films. Um, and they are great. So, again, you know, Vincent Price, head of the curve. Anyway, that was all I wanted to do today. That was what I do. I wanted, to, I wanted to enjoy it. This is coming out on his birthday as well. You may be listening to this on his birthday. I don't know. But 27th of May is uh, Vincent Price's birthday. And and Christopher Lee's, for that matter. And actually the day before, 26th, yesterday, was Peter Cushing's birthday. A trifecta of horror iconography. Absolutely fantastic. But we're here for Vincent Price. 27th of May. 110 years old. I tip my hat to you, sir. Happy birthday. And thank you very much for such wonderful films. And uh, if you have any favourites, if you've got a favourite Vincent Price films, five Vincent Price films, let me know. Get in contact. You can contact me on Twitter at 20th Century Geek, or it's all going to be 20th Century Geek, but email me 20th Century Geek at gmail.com. Find me on other social medias, uh, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for 20th Century Geek, you'll find me right there. Go visit the website. We've got a contacts page on the website. And we've got a whole bunch of other things on the website as well. We've got uh, other episodes. We've got blogs. We've got reviews, news, newsletters. Sign up for the newsletter. Find out more about what I've been going on. Reviews and ideas and things I've got going on in my life. All of it at 20thCenturyGeek.com. And if you really want to support us, and why wouldn't you? We're wonderful, or I'm wonderful at least. I have a Patreon page. it's www.patreon.com slash 20cgpod. Go and find them. We've got a number of things we do on there. We provide exclusive material for our patrons. Uh, podcasts and reviews, uh, polls, all kinds of different bits and pieces that we do for our patrons. So go and check that out. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you enjoy some Vincent Price on his birthday. And ladies and gentlemen, I shall speak to you 
next time.